Well, good morning, everyone. It's a, uh, it's a blessing and a privilege. It's always a blessing and a privilege to be able to walk through God's word with you all. Um, and this morning, we will be looking at the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, our passage, as you can see in your bulletin, is chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. But when we read, I'm going to begin reading from chapter 1, verse 27, to sort of set the scene, as it were. So if you haven't turned there already, I would invite you to do that. Uh, Philippians 1, verse 27, is where we begin in a second. The, uh, the title of this sermon, just to sort of set up what we're going to be looking at this morning, is The Unthinkable Selflessness of Jesus. That's the title because that is what is so clearly on display in our passage. And we have the privilege this morning of getting to be refreshed and encouraged as we think about what our Savior has done for us, just as we have the obligation to consider what that example means for how we ought to live together as a body. And that is the essence of what we're going to be unpacking this morning. We will be looking at the unthinkable selflessness of Jesus with the twin goals of being refreshed and encouraged and to make it our aim to follow in his footsteps. But with that, let's read the passage, again, beginning in chapter 1, verse 27, and then we'll ask the Lord's blessing one more time this morning. Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then our passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, our text this morning is both beautiful and sobering. And I pray, Lord, that you would give me the words and that you would bless this body this morning, Lord, with... um, the, the, the right soil, the right, the right receptiveness, Lord, to do justice to everything that Paul writes here as we see the, the, the dizzying heights of the Lord Jesus's incredible, unthinkable selflessness for us. I ask for your blessing on our time this morning in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, in our passage, in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul gives the church at Philippi a command. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. And what follows in the rest of the passage is Paul describing to this church the mindset that they, and by implication, we, are to adopt. And our intention this morning, as I alluded to at the beginning, is to walk through that mindset, and we're going to do sort of an extended meditation on it, which is clearly the, the Spirit's intent. That's how this passage is laid out. The Spirit intends for us to bask in, to joyously reflect on what Jesus did, and let that both empower and inform how we live our lives as a local body. But in order to do justice to our passage this morning, I do need to establish just a wee bit of context since we're parachuting into the end of a, a, a passage on Christian unity. Paul has been talking about Christian unity since 127, and this sort of concludes that. And so it's important that we catch ourselves up to make sure we understand the thrust of what Paul is saying here. And to do that, I have four bits of context, four points to make, four uneven they're going to get longer as I go, uh, four uneven bits of context that will help orient us to our passage this morning. And the first one, the shortest one, is that we should note that the book of Philippians is really a thank you note from the Apostle Paul while in prison to a church that he founded, a church that has been his constant supporter while they themselves undergo persecution for the gospel. That's why this letter is being written in the first place. Now, our second point is that this letter is one of encouragement. This church is a healthy church. They are not suffering conduct problems like the church at Corinth. They are not flirting with heresy like the churches in Galatia. No, Paul is writing to a healthy church, and he is encouraging them to excel still more at something that they are already doing. And what that implies to us is that what Paul's talking about here is a centrally important thing. He's not addressing a specialized problem. He is telling them to excel still more at what is important. And in fact, what we see in our passage this morning is something that is aspirational for all Christians at all times. What we talk about this morning is something that we should all be aiming at always. It, picture helps. Paul is encouraging a church that is already sailing in the right direction to keep looking at true north. Now our third point of context this morning is that the north star, the true north that Paul wants this church to focus on is Christian unity. At its core, Paul is encouraging this church to focus on a body life that is marked by a profound togetherness and unity. And we can see that in two passages prior to our text. The first one is in chapter 1, verse 27. This begins the immediate context for our passage. Paul begins by saying, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, fun fact, that's going to be relevant later. You could more literally render that, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. And what Paul is doing here in this verse is playing with words a little bit. Philippi, the, the town or city of Philippi, is a Roman colony. These are, these are Romans that he's talking to. And if it helps, think about you know, a couple hundred years ago when England and France and Spain went out and kind of conquered most of the world, whether it was Africa or India or the, or, 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 uh, the, the, the Americas. 
if you had to choose between being an English citizen um, or say in, in a, 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 a citizen of India as England conquers India, which one would you rather be? You would much rather obviously be a citizen of England or Spain or France or the like. There are rights and privileges that go along with that. And in the same way, being a Roman in the Roman Empire is not a small deal. It's actually a rather big deal. And the Philippians knew that, and Paul knows that they know that, which is why twice in this book, here and in chapter 3, he reminds them that they are citizens, in fact, of a different, better kingdom. They are citizens of the kingdom of God and not the empire of Rome, and so he tells them to behave worthy of the good news of the kingdom of God in verse 27. And the rest of verse 27, he makes clear that the life lived worthy of the gospel is a life that is lived together. He says... So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's fair to summarize what Paul is saying there is that a life worthy of the gospel is a life lived together. Now, in the immediate context of the chapter, that unity is a unity that stands together for the faith despite the persecution of a hostile world, but it's a unity nonetheless. And then just a, shoof, uh, sorry, a short few verses later in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, after giving five gospel motives that empowers unity, Paul commands this church to have a single-minded devotedness to each other. This is how he prescribes it in verses 2 to 4. He says, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his interests, but also to the interests of others. What he's commanding them here is to a single-minded devotedness to each other. This is the sort of unity that requires selflessness. It requires humility. It requires me putting others' needs ahead of my own, or at least equal to my own. It requires that I think of you more highly than you deserve, and I think of myself equal to what I deserve. So in summarizing in both 127 and 2, 1 through 4, Paul is encouraging a church that, that, that should be fighting for the faith together in the face of persecution, and he commands a, a form of unity that pictures the church lovingly acting in sacrificial harmony together. And so, yes, my third point, Christian unity is the north star of local churches, a loving, sacrificial, devoted togetherness that should always be our priority. And that's the immediate context for our passage. Now there's one more point to make, and this is an easy elephant in the room. It's obvious, but it deserves to be said, this is hard. This is not easy. It's easy for me to read everything I just said. It's a lot harder to actually live it out. In a sense, this is unnatural. I think we'd all agree it's beautiful. I mean, if I showed you a picture of two churches, one that was living this out and one that wasn't, I doubt there'd be a single person in this room who would say anything other than the one living it out is more beautiful, more Christ-like than the other. Everyone would want to live in a church that was functioning this way, and that's because the superiority of selfless unity is not up for debate. The struggle is that it's hard to do, and that's where our passage comes in. That's where verses 5 to 11 comes in. If it's hard, if we need help to live this out, what do we do? And Paul's answer, the Spirit's answer is, you look at Jesus. 
you look at Jesus. The Spirit is pointing us to the example of Jesus, an example that is meant to both inform and empower. It's meant to both inform and empower. What you and I need, if we're going to have any hope at all of living the way that we're being called to here, is an example that makes us want to live this out. And that is what we have in verses 5 to 11. In 5 to 11, Paul is pointing us to the example of the Lord Jesus as he chose an incomprehensible path of humble self-sacrifice for us. And we are meant, as we rejoice and glory in what Jesus did for us, to see both a standard that we are to follow or meet and fuel to meet that standard. We're to hear these words and feel the desire to do the same. Encouraged by his sacrifice for us, we are to want to sacrifice for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for whom he also sacrificed. And so those are the four points of context for our passage before we begin this extended meditation on what Jesus did. But let me reread verses 5 through 8 at least, and then we'll begin kind of walking through this chunk by chunk. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, as we begin this meditation, we should begin by noticing Uh, that Paul paints the picture of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us by beginning with Jesus' exalted, pre-existing state in verse 6. And this is important because ultimately every sacrifice is measured by what is given up. If someone were to bust in the room right now and, and grab someone hostage, it makes a difference, doesn't it, if the ransom was $5 or everything we collectively own. The sacrifice is markedly different depending on what the ransom price is. The higher the cost, the greater the sacrifice, which is why Paul begins with reminding us what Jesus had. And verse 6 tells us that he had a lot. It says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, it's clear from the context that Paul is picturing Jesus here in his pre-incarnational state. He is contrasting what it looked like for Jesus before he took on human form and nature and after. And in this pre-existing state, Paul makes very clear that it is exalted. It is high. It is privileged. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus was in the form of God. And the word form there is, is morphe in the Greek. It's a somewhat rare word in the New Testament used twice here, and that's largely it. But it exists in extra-biblical literature, and, and, and ultimately, it's, Paul is using it to refer to a, as a state of being. Paul, Paul is saying when Jesus was in the form of God, he's saying that Jesus' mode of being from all eternity, what he existed as, his position in the universe, was as God. He is calling our attention to the fact that Jesus, being fully divine, had all of the rights, privileges, and power of being God. And that's a hard thing to say and a hard thing to grasp, and so maybe an imperfect picture would be helpful. 
There is um, an old Disney movie called The Prince and the Pauper. It, it borrows from a storyline that's been used a million times before. But the basic idea is that you have somebody, usually a person in royalty, prince or princess, who has all of the rights and privileges of being royalty. They've got all the money, the power, the servants, the land. You name it, they want something, it's theirs. But they don't like it. They, they, they chafe. They, they yearn for freedom. They, they want to live a life where they don't have to have cameras on them at all times. They don't have to you know, have people care about everything they say. They want to be able to have a, an opinion that isn't, that isn't controlled. And so they find somebody who magically looks identical to them, someone who is impoverished, someone who has nothing, no responsibility, total freedom, and they switch places. And hijinks ensue, of course. But the point of, of that picture is that the prince is the prince no matter what. Whether he's in the palace, he's still the prince. Whether he's living the life as, as the pauper, he's still ultimately the prince. The difference is the, the state of being, the, the, the way he's living his life. When he is living as the prince, he has all of the rights, powers, and privileges as the prince. And when he is engaged in life as the pauper, he has none of those things. He doesn't change. His status, his status changes. And that's essentially a picture of what Paul is talking about here. Jesus existed as God with all the rights, powers, and privileges that goes along with it. See, God is the absolute ruler over everything. There is nothing that is not subject to him. He stands above everything as a king stands above his kingdom. He is served by the heavenly host that attends to him constantly in praise and worship. He is unconstrained by space or time existing everywhere at once. He is beholden to no one. He does everything and anything that he pleases and no one can tell him otherwise. And he is not subject to the least harm or deprivation. He lacks nothing. He exists in this exalted state. And that's what Paul wants us to keep in mind because although Jesus existed in the form of God, verse 6 goes on to tell us that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that phrase, a thing to be grasped, is another word that's really fun and it's been the subject of, of much debate. The, the core sense of it has to do with robbery, something that you might take by force, something that you might want. And so it, that's the maybe core definition of the word. It can also be used a little more figuratively for the thing itself, the thing that you want to take, or it can be used even more figuratively for something that is valuable. You can kind of see the progression there a little bit. Something that's valuable that might be held on to. And that latter sense is how Paul is using it here. Jesus, although he existed in his exalted state as God with all the rights and power and privileges, he did not consider staying in that state as something that should be held onto. He wasn't going to hold on to all those rights and privileges and status. He wasn't going to cling to them as precious. I don't know if you've ever seen a, a, a TV show or a movie where someone robs a bank or, or otherwise you know, holds a bunch of people up. You know, they usually have a bag, and they tell people to put their valuables, phones, wallets, whatever else in the bag. And there's always, like, one little old lady who has, like, a set of pearls or a ring or something. It's like grandma's heirloom, and she clutches on that thing for dear life, and the, the robber has to pry it away from her. That is the opposite of Jesus here. He knowingly and deliberately was willing to part with his exalted status, which is the point of verse 6. And... 
pausing here for just a second. If you were the Philippians, this would have absolutely blown your minds. Because in the Greco-Roman world of the day, this sort of thing was absolutely unthinkable. There is, there is, it is unfathomable in the culture of the day to have someone with position and power and privilege lay it down like this so willingly. There is no Greco-Roman god in their mythology that would have done this. In fact, Greco-Roman mythology is full of the opposite of that. They're, they're, the, the, the Greek and Roman religion is full of the opposite of their pantheon doing these things. Their, their mythology is their gods exploiting their power and status. Greek mythology is, is full of patricide, fratricide, whatever the sister version of that is. Incest, sexual assault, mutilation, cruelty, jealousy, and deceit. It is all about people with power doing what they want with that power. And again, speaking to Roman citizens, this also would have been uh, mind-blowing. It would not have been lost, after all, on the Philippians that the empire of Rome that they're living in only roughly 90 short years ago was once the Republic of Rome. The first emperor, Augustus, took power about 30 years before Jesus' birth, and each successive emperor was largely worse than the last. And in fact, it's a fascinating read, those 90 years, but it really is the story of family members marrying, scheming, and murdering each other to maneuver their way onto the throne. The emperor at the time that Paul is writing this is Nero. He came to power when his mom assassinated his stepfather, who was the emperor at the time. That's how he ascended to the throne. It is a gross understatement to say that what Jesus was willing to do was unlike anything that the rulers or so-called gods of those days could imagine. And it's probably highly deliberate, highly likely, that Paul is drawing that comparison for these Roman citizens between the king, the king of the universe and the petty humans who ruled Rome. Jesus, in his exalted state, was willing to give it up knowingly and willingly. He wasn't twi tricked. <laughs> Twicked. He wasn't tricked. He didn't go into these things with misunderstood expectations. He wasn't compelled or forced. He didn't do it through gritted teeth. He knew what he was giving up, why, and for whom. You know, in that uh, Prince and Pauper switcheroo story I mentioned earlier, usually what happens is that Prince has a wrong view of royalty, and he has an overly ro uh, rosy view of what it means to be poor and free. And he usually regrets his decision. But Jesus wasn't confused. He gets all the credit in the world because he knew what he had. He knew what he was giving up. He knew what he was about to undertake, and he knew exactly what it would demand of him. And he did it anyways. He was under no illusions, and he was under no delusions. What he gave up and what he would take up was given with full knowledge and with unreserved willingness. So yes, Paul's point in verse 6 is that Jesus was in this high and exalted state. And as we transition into verses 7 and 8, what Paul does now is he's going to show us just how far from that exalted state Jesus fell. And if you were listening very carefully just a second ago, you might have noticed that I said what Jesus gave up and what Jesus would take up. And I deliberately use that phrase because that's really how Paul talks about it in verse 7. In verse 7, he says, 
but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And the word emptied there is a pretty literal translation of that word. Unfortunately, some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly our Lutheran brothers and sisters, have gotten themselves in trouble over the years, thinking that this means that Jesus somehow emptied himself of his divine attributes, as if he gave up his omniscience or he gave up his omnipotence. But that's not true or possible. God can't stop being God in any way, shape, or form, and that doesn't really fit the context. If existing in the form of God refers to his exalted state, his place of worship and glory and honor, then emptying himself refers to stepping down from that exalted state of being into a different state of being, kind of like the prince who's still the prince stepped down and became a pauper. And that's exactly what Paul says. He says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus stepped down from that exalted state into the form, same word, morphe, of that of a servant. We could say it this way. We could say that the king of the universe steps down from that exalted position as king into the position and role of a servant. And he did so by being born as a man. Jesus didn't give up his divinity. He took on our humanity. He added, and in doing so, he put himself in a humble state. The idea is that Jesus took on the role of a servant by taking on a human nature and a human body. He was taking on humanity so that he might serve humanity. And again, pausing for just a second, this is also rather mind-blowing, isn't it? I mean, we can, pro- we can imagine a scenario in which someone in a position of power and privilege and wealth and might want to take a little break from their responsibility, might want to get away for a couple of weeks, stepping away from the pomp and circumstance of power, but to give it all up, and not just give it all up, but to give it up to serve your servants, that is unthinkable. That is absolutely unfathomable. And Paul is asking us to, to think of the contrast. And again, I said Jesus existed in that exalted state. He, he was served by a heavenly host that attends to him constantly in praise and worship. He is unconstrained by space and time. He was beholden to no one. He was not subject to any harm or de- deprivation. That was his before. Now think about his after. As humans, we are constrained, aren't we, in these weak and frail bodies. We are subject to sickness, to disease, to weariness, to hunger, and to pain. And we're subject to other humans, to to parents, to governing authorities, and the like, even if they're imperfect or cruel or unjust. That was his after. The, The king of the universe who spoke creation into being suffered the indignity of having to have his soiled diapers changed. He endured the pains of hunger and being tired. He was subjected to imperfect parents. The rulers of his day tried repeatedly to kill him. And he wasn't born into a powerful, important, or wealthy family. He was literally born in a place where people said, can anything good come from there? Think of the contrast of his before and his after. He made a huge sacrifice just by taking on a human form and human nature. But Paul goes on. That's not 
all that he did. His sacrifice didn't end there. Verse 8 says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. After emptying himself of his exalted state and taking on the form of a servant, Jesus further humbled himself. And that word, humbled, is also interesting. It basically means to be brought low. And you can use it in a good sense. I'm a humble guy. But you can also use it in the sense of to humiliate. It doesn't have to have this sense, but the words can mean to be put into a state of lowliness and shame. And I think that's probably closer to what Paul actually intends here. Paul is emphasizing that Jesus didn't just take the role of a servant. His service extended to suffering the worst sort of humiliation for our good. And I'm getting that from the words, even death on a cross. And it's sometimes lost, I think, uh, for us modernly. But the ancient world, crucifixion was just as much about shame and humiliation as it was physical suffering and death. More fun facts. It was illegal to crucify a Roman. No matter how bad their crimes were, they were not subject to crucifixion. It was even a term that you didn't mention in polite society. There's a, a Roman named Cicero who, who was writing slightly before Jesus' day. This is a famous quote of his. The very word cross must be far removed, not only from the bodies of Roman citizens, but even from their thoughts, their ears, and their eyes. This was a taboo subject you didn't mention in polite society. Those who were crucified were typically the worst offenders, the lowest of the low, slaves. And because it was a horribly painful way to die, usually taking several days, those who were crucified were usually displayed in prominent places as a warning to others. In the Roman world, being crucified was not merely a way of killing someone. It was a purposefully shameful, humiliating death. And it wasn't just the Gentiles who saw crucifixion as something horrifying beyond the physical. For the Jews, crucifixion was a sign of being cursed by God. In Galatians 3.13, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 21.23, saying that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, and here's the quote from Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. By the way, that the scene where, where Pilate presents Jesus to the crowd, and they don't cry out, execute him, or kill him. They cry out, crucify him. It's got a lot more meaning to it, knowing all this, doesn't it? This is, this is not a, a call for his death. This is a call for his cursing and his humiliation, as well as his physical death. And of course, it's true. Jesus was cursed by God. Galatians, the quote I just read, says exactly that. He did die as a criminal. In fact, he died as the worst criminal in human history. The one being who cannot have even the slightest trace of sin in him went to the cross as the vilest offender in history. Of course, not because he himself sinned, but because the countless sins of all of those who had put their faith in him were heaped on him so that he might pay it all. Which also means, in a sense, that he suffered more than anyone will ever suffer. I don't think it's even possible for us to comprehend the extent of what Jesus went through on the cross. I'm not sure even in eternity it, it'll be possible for us to understand it. But that's how low Jesus went. Putting all of these things together, brothers and sisters, think about Jesus' exalted pre-existing state. 
Think about him deliberately giving up that up to take on the limitations of humanity. Think about him doing that in order to serve us and think about that service culminating in the most horrific, humiliating, suffering-laden death possible. He could not have started any higher than he did and he could not have ended any lower than he did. He was made the lowest of the low in both the eyes of the watching world, Jew and Gentile, as well as in the eyes of the Father. And he did it for you. He did it for you because he loves you. And that, brothers and sisters, that big picture is the example, the mindset going back to verse 5, that we are to adopt. This sort of unthinkable selflessness. Now, of course obvious words. There is wisdom in how we would put this into practice. There are other biblical principles that need to be brought to bear and kept in mind to prevent errors in application. But Jesus's unthinkable selflessness is what we are called to adopt to our brothers and sisters in our pursuit of unity. Let me make this a little more practical for you, tiny bit. I hope that as we have unpacked this, you have been encouraged, edified, amazed, and even made joyous knowing that Jesus did all of this for you. I hope, and I will pray at the end, that, that seeing the height and the depth and the breadth of the love of God for you in Christ, in the sacrifice of Jesus, has refreshed your love and your gratitude towards him, as well as inspired you to want to follow in his footsteps. I hope you are hearing all of this and fully realizing what this says about his love for you. Just as I hope that you realize what it says about his love for the brother and sister in Christ sitting next to you. Jesus stepped down from his exalted state in the form of a servant to die an excruciating and humiliating death for the person in Christ sitting next to you. And if that is true, if Jesus, because of all of this, is precious to you, how then do you think you ought to treat those in this body for whom he also did this? It'd be fair to reframe all of this and say one core reason for the importance, the central importance of Christian unity is that we are living with our beloved's beloved. And how we treat them matters. How we think about them matters. Not just, by the way, because Jesus loves them and died for them, but because the Bible also says that there's a relationship between how we treat each other and how we treat Jesus. It's a little bit of an aside, but I would, I would ask you to turn over to Matthew 25 really quick, if you're so inclined. Matthew 25, uh, we would be in verse 34. Before I read it, just to tee it up, this is Jesus Speaking of his return and the final judgment, Jesus is speaking of separating the sheep from the goats. Matthew 25, 34, this is what he says. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. 
Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What we do to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we do to our Lord as well. And so, yes, unity is centrally important. Yes, we are to adopt the mindset on display in verses 6 to 8, the mindset that Jesus had for us. We are to love with this unthinkable selflessness those that Jesus served because he served us and because loving our brothers and sisters in Christ is a way of expressing our love and our gratitude to our Savior. And yes, if at any point in time, when we are tempted to act selfishly, we are to do what Paul does here and remember the unthinkable selflessness of Jesus, both as example and motivation. Now, brothers and sisters, as we draw this to a close this morning, let us remember that we are called to a truly remarkable sort of unity in this local church. Let us remember that this unity is the sort of life that is worthy of the gospel And let us remember the incredible, unthinkable selflessness of Jesus. That's both our example to follow and our motivation to do so. And while that feels like a really good place to end, I've got one more point of encouragement for you all. And it's another one of those fun elephants in the room, going back to the point I made earlier that this is hard. There are two reasons why this is hard. Two reasons why following Jesus' example is difficult. One is my own selfishness. The other one is you. You don't merit this. You don't deserve this. No one has achieved this. And in fact, as we try to do this together, it's not going to be glamorous. We will love each other. We will sacrifice for each other. And some people won't even notice. The ones that do, they won't be as grateful as they ought to be. Others won't reciprocate the way they ought to. And we will absolutely find ourselves having to love those who have sinned against us or maybe are sinning against us. And so I think it's important that we note where Paul ends this passage in verses 9 to 11. He ends with Jesus' promised reward. He concludes this thought on Jesus' example by saying, and this is, a quote from, from, or part of this is a quote from Isaiah 45. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul ends the, the, the statement of Jesus' unthinkable selflessness by pointing out that because of that selflessness, the Father exalted the Son. But it's of import, I think, to note that Paul doesn't say that Jesus was merely restored to his former glory. Paul doesn't say that Jesus took off his crown, suffered and died, put his crown back on. This is a new glory. This is a resulting glory. This is the glory of the risen lamb. This is the glory of the suffering servant that is now the risen king. While Jesus has, in point of fact, returned to his exalted state, his selflessness has achieved something that wasn't there before. 
more than merely being worshipped by angels, Jesus will now be enjoyed forever and will enjoy forever those he has redeemed. And I would submit that part of what Paul is intending to do here, amongst many other things, speaking to those who are supposed to follow in Jesus' example, is an implied promise that our own sacrifices in loving one another will not be in vain. We who are called to follow our Lord's example in selflessness, however imperfectly we do it, will also find ourselves following in his blessedness when he returns. And may that be an encouragement, I think, as Paul intends, to our own souls as well to persevere in doing good. As Paul says in Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Brothers and sisters, whether the difficulty is our own selfishness or the fact that we have to love people more than they actually deserve, may we persevere as our Savior did for us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a privilege it is to be someone, Lord, for whom you have done all of this. I pray that we would let ourselves not, Lord, move away too quickly from glorying in what you've done for us into trying to figure out 47 practical ways of doing this. I I pray, Lord, that we would let this example have root in our hearts and our minds this week. I pray that the, that each of us, uh, to, to, for, the, for those who are in Christ in this body, Lord, that we would just know your love and the, 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 the graciousness that this example shows us, uh, that, that, that you have towards us, Lord. And I pray when that takes root, that it would overflow into loving one another with the same sort of unthinkable selflessness. I pray, Lord, that we would keep in mind that every single person in Christ in this congregation is one for whom Jesus also so sacrificed, and that we would treat each other, Lord, not just as another person that we see on occasion each week, but as our beloved's beloved. I ask you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.